Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 138 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Lady of Line, an interview with Christina Kovacs. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. This, Matt, is a great episode of a young woman who just showed as much grit as anyone we've ever seen during one of her interviews. She was sick for a long time, but she went from doctor to doctor to doctor demanding answers. And she ultimately went to over 100 doctors before she found the real life doctor house and was diagnosed with Lyme disease. And Richard, is anybody out there listening who's looking for a resource to find a wide variety of different treatment protocols for Lyme disease and have somebody evaluate them and explain them, then this is the podcast episode for them. So without further ado, Matt, I'd like to introduce the lady of Lyme, Christina Kovacs to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Christina, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, we've been really, really excited about interviewing you, young lady. So uh, <laughs> Matt and I have been fans of you and your blog for a long, long time, and it's been a long time coming, but we finally have you on the podcast, and we know that our listeners are going to be blessed to hear your story. So Christina, where are you from? So I'm from Kentucky. So I know you all are from up up north, but I'm from Kentucky. Uh, I was born in California, but I lived most of my life in Kentucky, mostly raised here. And uh, Christina, where'd you go to school? So I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Louisville. So go cards. All right. And yeah, so, uh, yes. <laughs> and then uh, Christina, you were there mm -hmm. during the Rick Patino era. Yes. Oh, the best era. We like to we like to hold that close in our hearts because basketball was great then, our football team was great, everything was just, we were living high. Yeah, so that school has produced some great athletes and I'm sure it was a great time for you to be there. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what your childhood was like. Uh, I'd like you to share with our listeners, you know, what were your goals, what were your dreams, what kinds of things were you working toward before you got sick? Mm-hmm. I had a great childhood. I always tell people that. I think the reason that when I did get sick, it was so stark is because I was such a healthy child, truly. I pretty much never got sick, which was great for me because I lived a very carefree life and could just, you know, focus on what really were my passions and what made me me. And I was always a very creative little child. I always really loved fashion and design, things like that. And so um, <laughs> growing up in a small town, I would find fabrics and take them to a seamstress and she would help me make outfits. And I was always just kind of living in my own little world. And I'm a very determined soul. I've always been very determined. And um, actually, whenever I was in high school, I wanted to go to law school, believe it or not, very specifically because I wanted to help people. So that's kind of I'm I feel like I'm one half just creativity and really loving that. And I'm one half a very determined person who just wanted to help people. I wanted to make things right in the world. I wanted to do good. And those two things really drove me my whole life, truthfully. So now, Christina, what did you know about ticks and tick diseases during your childhood, meaning prior to the time that you were bitten and got sick? Nothing, <laughs> nothing. I did not know they even existed. Uh, I was never a big outdoorsy person growing up, truthfully. I was one of those girly girls who was like, ooh, bugs, ooh, I don't like that. I don't like to be uncomfortable. So I didn't ever go camping and I didn't ever you know, do any of the really outdoorsy things a lot of people do. So I also wasn't aware. I wasn't aware that ticks were a thing. And I think truthfully part of this is because um, 
both of my parents are from Hungary. And so I'm the, I'm a first generation American and I was initially born in California. And so there's even less discussion about ticks there. Right. So, uh, I moved to Kentucky when I was about five, six years old and it just, you know, no one told us of course, but that topic was just never on the radar ever. Well, Christina, you're obviously very bright. You went to one of America's top colleges. So I'm sure <laughs> that is not something that uh, that didn't require you to do a lot of work and, of course, have a good educational experience. So just mm-hmm. so I'm clear, during the course of the time that you were educated, either in California or in Kentucky, mm-hmm. you never had a health class where you discussed Lyme, ticks, or anything related to tick diseases. No, never, never. And it's it's... It's truly shocking. When I tell you this, you're going to be even more shocked, but my mother is actually a physician and even she, it's, they, it's, it's wild to me, but even though, I mean, you know, she kind of knew about Lyme disease, there was no discussion about that. They weren't really doing testing. They just kind of believed that ticks weren't around here. So it was a non, a non-issue, a non-topic. So let's talk about your, your tick experience. Um, how old were you when you got bitten and what was that experience like? So, okay. At the time when I was bitten by the tick, I did not know that it was a tick bite. I should say that because uh, one thing that living in a small town, we like to do to pass time. Whenever I was in high school, we like to play spotlight tag. And um, I don't know if anyone's familiar with it. Okay. So basically you have one person who has the spotlight and then you have Uh, I don't know, usually, usually about 10 to 12 others who go and hide. So this is played outdoors. You hide behind trees and in bushes and things like that. And then you uh, have a base camp and everyone tries to get back to base camp without being caught by the person with the flashlight. So that's the way that it was played. And we would usually meet at my house. Um, And I happen to live around a lot of wooded areas. So it's this neighborhood and it's just surrounded by woods and so whenever we would play spotlight tag, we would run back into the woods to try to hide behind the trees. And we were kind of down and everything. So that was the extent of my outdoor, my outdoorsy experience. But it happened to be that after one of these um, sessions without obviously checking for ticks, when I came back in, I woke up the next day and I felt terrible. And I had a sore throat and I had a fever and I had chills. And I, of course, I didn't know what was going on. I did not make the connection at the time. So uh, we called my doctor and they were like, oh, you know, it's just a summertime flu, which is exactly what I was told. And I was very shocked because I was under the impression, you know, flu was kind of a fall and winter thing. And she's like, no, 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 it happens sometimes. I was like, okay. So uh, I tried, I waited a little bit to get better. I didn't get better. So then we called back again and then they put me on some antibiotics. I think it was like a one week course. I don't remember what it was, but I got a one week course of antibiotics I felt a little bit better, but when I stopped the antibiotics, I got worse. So then they put me on a second kind of antibiotic and I was very sick during this time. I was in bed all day, sleeping all day. I felt miserable and this was really bad timing because this was actually in 2006. It was right before I was going to go off to college. So the timing couldn't have been worse. So I actually tried three different antibiotics. Finally, the third one ended up working enough to where I felt like I would be okay. I still had lingering fatigue, but I thought, oh, okay, like that'll, that'll pass. Who knows? Um, so that's when I got bit. But again, at the time, I didn't know this is only one of those in retrospect, when I got diagnosed, all the little pieces came together, but yeah. 
So let's talk a little bit more about that. So you're the daughter of a doctor. Mm-hmm. Your mother is aware of your symptoms and your mother's aware that you have classic Lyme disease symptoms, a summer flu, and she doesn't diagnose you with Lyme disease, correct? No, no, she had no idea. No. So she, she sends you to one of her colleagues mm-hmm. who also diagnoses you uh, with what should have been seen as classic Lyme disease symptoms. And she puts you on a course of antibiotics. So talk to us about why you believe you went from antibiotic to antibiotic to antibiotic, because that obviously was helpful, but they weren't using the antibiotics for the proper reason and certainly for the proper course and probably the proper dosage. So mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the, the, the antibiotic pivots that, um, that were a part of your early Lyme disease um, experience. Yeah. So I got the first course of antibiotics because of course, the way that we, at least I was taught is, you know, you're sick, you have a sore throat, whatever, take antibiotics, you're fine. That was just kind of the routine way that I was growing up that I had learned. So I got the first course of antibiotics. That one was pretty short. I want to say it was maybe five to seven days. And when I took it, I did, I felt a little bit better and I was like, okay, this, this, this could work. But as soon as I stopped it, everything just came crashing back down. And that didn't make any sense. But of course, at the time, my doctor was like, well, I think we just didn't have the right kind. Okay. So she gave me a second kind of antibiotic, a, a different one, I guess, maybe more wide spectrum. I'm not 100% sure. I did that for a week again. It also made me feel a little bit better. And I thought, okay, this is going to be the turning point. And the same thing happened. And as soon as I stopped taking it, I started feeling a lot worse. And it was like, I just got kicked back down. And so then finally I got the third course of antibiotics and this one was pretty wide spectrum. And like I said, I think I was on it, gosh, maybe 10 to 14 days. This was the longest of them all. And that one seemed to at least do enough to make me feel like, okay, I'm not hundred percent, but maybe it'll just take time. Like that was kind of my mentality of, uh, I'll come around. So Yeah, it definitely wasn't a long enough of a course as I'm realizing now, but I think it was just enough to kick it down a notch in my system so that I could go back to life thinking that I was okay when I definitely was not. So this, this event occurred just before you said you left for college. Yes. So the three or four week course of three different types of antibiotics was enough to put you in a position where you can now leave for college. And do you leave for college? Yes. Yep. So I leave for college. I embark for the first time. I'm living by myself and I have all this independence and I have this crazy course, course load. I have just, I really didn't realize how over my head I was with everything. I think that's a lot for a lot of freshmen that go to college. Suddenly it's just like, boom, you're in the real world, like welcome. And so during that first semester, I struggled with fatigue, just severely struggled with fatigue. And you would think that I could have connected the dots that those two events were related. So when I was sick, that maybe this is still that. But interestingly enough, the, I didn't connect the dots. And when I went to the doctor for this fatigue, they thought that maybe I picked up mono. They thought, oh, well, you know, my course load was just so chaotic and maybe my immune system's down. It's common to have mono in college. It must be mono. So I got tested for mono. Of course, it was negative. And then a month later, I got tested for mono again. And that was kind of what they thought. They thought it was just that. Um, and at the end of my first semester, I had finals and I really wasn't sleeping a lot and I really beat my immune system down. And so when I came home for Christmas that year, I got really sick again. 
again, you would think that this is the time when I would connect the dots, but I did not. I thought this was something separate, but I got sick in a similar way, meaning, you know, fever, chills, sore throat, um, just feeling very lethargic. I was sick all through Christmas and the same thing. I got another course of antibiotics because that's just seems to be the answer for everything. Um, again, uh, something, I guess, enough to make me kind of go back to, to, to school in January, but not enough. And what happened then also is then all of my GI symptoms started. So that was for me, the turning point where it went from just feeling tired to having really severe stomach problems. And that second semester of school was very tough for me to get through because I had horrific stomach pains and oddly, and this was kind of the mystery that started then that continued, it would be a lot worse for me at night. Could not figure out why, but the nighttime, you know, my stomach could be okay during the day, but at night it was just horrific cramps and pain and nausea and all kinds of strange things. And so I would be calling my mom at two in the morning, crying alone by myself and not understanding what was going on. And I think that was the time when I really realized, okay, something's wrong. I have not felt right for a while. It was obvious to me because like I had mentioned prior to that, I was very, very healthy. So these two things next to each other, the parallels, I just, in my heart at that moment, I knew, okay, we're missing something. I need to, I need to figure this out. So Christina, let's talk about how your developing symptoms impacted your college experience during your first semester. You said you were, you were, and I can actually, in advance of me asking that question, one of the things we've seen through our Instagram is a lot of people who are suffering from Lyme disease are really offended when people who are trying to articulate how they think you're feeling as being tired and trying to compare tiredness to fatigue. So can you articulate to us what the difference was between the kind of tiredness you felt before you had Lyme disease and the fatigue you were now feeling during your freshman year in college? Yes. Um, the fatigue for me, I was always one of those people who I could, I, I, I was a night owl. I could push myself. I didn't need a ton of sleep. I always was that kind of person. If I was tired, I would just drink some caffeine and then I'd bounce right back. You know, especially when you're at that age, when you're 18 years old, you're young, you're healthy. You don't need a lot of sleep. You recover quickly. And so for me, fatigue, the, the difference for me is that it didn't really matter what I did. So I could sleep a lot. I could try to drink caffeine. It didn't matter what I tried to do. It wasn't helping me. I felt like I was dragging every second of the day. And honestly, a lot of people said, well, it's your first semester of college. It's normal for you to be exhausted. And so I told myself, well, everyone feels like this. So I guess this is just normal. And I knew it wasn't, but I tried to kind of tell myself that. I think that's what in a lot of ways kept me going or kept me from investigating more in the beginning is because I was just told, well, this is very normal for your first semester of college. So how did this fatigue impact your first semester, both socially and educationally? Mm -hmm. So um, I think I had mentioned earlier that I'm a very determined, active person. So I was in school, but I also had a job and I also had a social life. So I was very busy. I, there was a million things I had to do constantly. And I also am the kind of person where, you know, I didn't know what was wrong with me. And so I didn't really tell the people around me, my friends. I mean, these are new friends. When you're in college, you're just making these new friendships and bonds. I didn't understand what was going on. I thought maybe it was normal. So 
it was pretty exhausting for me because I was living a little bit of a double life. So I was trying to enjoy college, but I had to do all these extra steps. Like as soon as, you know, especially I started having stomach problems, I knew that like I couldn't eat before class because if I ate before class, then I risked like getting sick or something in class. So I had all these things going on in my mind. Like I can't do this. I can't do that. Or I'd have to wake up extra early so I could, you know, um, cause it took me a lot longer to wake up in the mornings or I needed more sleep, but it was just a very juggling act that I was trying to do where I was really attempting to appear normal to everyone around me because I didn't know what was going on. It kind of freaked me out. And so you don't realize that you kind of exhaust yourself more trying to live this kind of two way street and not show people what's really happening. So now you said that your mom and you would talk regularly about these developing symptoms. Did Mm -hmm. she at any point suggests to you that perhaps uh, you may have been suffering from a tick disease? No, again, no. You know, (laughs) you'll see a recurring theme in this and it's that whenever I had issues going on and I would see a doctor, they would each tell me it is a new separate thing. So even from my first tick bite or from when I was being tested for mono or when I came home for Christmas and I was sick again, Every single doctor believed that these were independent things. And so I believed that they were independent things. My mother believed, like everyone believed that these were separate instances that just so happened to happen, you know, because whenever I was sick during finals, it's like, oh, well, finals week that happens to college students. So each time it was seen as a separate event, which as you will see is really why I believe it took me so long to be diagnosed. So now the the symptoms began to present when you were 18. How old were you when you finally got your diagnosis? Um, Let's see. I I was 23 when I finally got my diagnosis. It took five years. So, and how many different doctors did you see in that five-year window before you finally got the proper diagnosis? Yeah, this is going to shock a lot of people, but easily 100. Easily. Um, I was a woman on a mission. I wanted to live my life. I wanted to just get back to a normal life. I was desperate for that. And as I mentioned before, I'm determined. If there is something that is in front of me and I need to figure it out, I will figure it out. And I also have a very good, just inner intuitive feeling. So if I would see a doctor and I felt like they were not understanding everything or there were all these puzzle pieces and they had answers for half of them, but not the other half, I just knew I just knew it was wrong. I just, you, you, you know, those things. And I have a very good feeling of that, that they're just not going in the right direction. And so then I would know that I'd have to kind of change paths and go somewhere else to someone. And so that's really what essentially led to that number. I also traveled a lot, which we can talk about later, but everywhere I kind of traveled or lived, I was going to doctors there as well. So it wasn't just in the Kentucky area, I was all over. Let's talk about that. So how many different states did you visit to, um, to see different doctors oh, wow. attempt to try to get you to your proper diagnosis? Oh gosh. Okay. So Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, West Virginia, Virginia, New York, California, Illinois, I don't know how many that is. (laughs) So those are all the places that I went and um, yeah, all over the place. So how many of those doctors told you that it was all in your head? (laughs) 
A lot. Uh, oddly, I got this the most from the GI doctors, which is, I don't know why, but, uh, you know, they would, of course, when you go in there and you're telling them you're having all these horrible symptoms and all these horrible pains and they give you an antacid and it doesn't help. And they give you like an antispasmodic for your stomach and that doesn't help. And they run a few of the tests. I mean, at the time, the typical test they would do would just be to see if you have any, um, like silent acid reflux, they would stick the scope down your throat, or they would do swallow test, barium swallow tests, or they would look to see, of course, if it's anything, um, anything like Crohn's disease or anything, which at the time I did not have. So once those came back as, you know, looking normal, I, that's when I got the, are you sure it's not just in your head? Are you sure you, you don't just really need to see a therapist or something? And I'm like, no, I'm fine. I am totally cognizant. I know what's happening and I, I know what I'm feeling. And that was very frustrating for me. Now, when you were, let, I'd like to focus again on your four years at Louisville. Yes. Um, what was your major? Psychology. And did you graduate with a, uh, a degree in psychology? I did, yes, yep. I got my BA in psychology. And what role do you think your studies in your major played in keeping you in a place where you believed that you were in fact sick rather than um, something going on in your head? Mm -hmm. Honestly, a lot. Um, I really loved my major. I studied it hard. I was fascinated by how the, the human brain works. I was fascinated by studies about just everything, re resiliency, and also understanding that there will be people who will doubt things that they can't see, but if you know you're on the right path to keep going. And truthfully for me, a lot of that came down to the fact that I was aware that just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not real. And in psychology, that's basically the bulk of it, right? You know, you can't see what is going on in someone's brain. You don't, you don't see all the different issues with their neuroreceptors and dopamine and serotonin, but it's very, it's very real to them. And so, you know, that's what made me realize that, okay, these doctors can't see whatever pain is going on in my stomach or the fatigue or whatever, but I know it's real and I'm aware of that. So I'm just going to keep going. And that coupled with me being very determined, <laughs> uh, those two things really were the things that helped me. Christina, were there, were there any other people during your college experience that mm -hmm. suggested that you were not in fact sick? Meaning not just the doctors that you were seeing, but were there any people in your, in your mm -hmm. social circle, anybody that you had uh, a romantic um, relationship with who were mm -hmm. questioning whether or not you really were sick? Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> honestly, I got this from a couple of layers from teachers. I, that was a thing from your professors, I should say in college that was um, often a problem because they would see me, of course, as a good student and someone who is there every day and I'm taking notes and I'm doing things. And so then when I tell them, um, you know, sometimes I couldn't be there because of doctor's appointments or something was going on or something of that nature. And I would try to talk to them. They just, I believe that they thought it was an excuse. That's sort of how they treated it. Like I was just making an excuse, which frustrated me so badly. As far as my friends and um, like boyfriends and stuff, my big problem was that I would hide what was going on about 90% of it. As much as I physically could hide, I would hide from my friends and the person that I was dating. And I think that was the, 
they, they knew something was wrong with me. They obviously knew I was going to a lot of doctors because I would leave, you know, I would just randomly leave with my parents and we would go for a day or two here to see a doctor or there. And, you know, obviously you can't hide everything. They could see that I was more tired or they could see that I was skipping events and stuff. And I did get a little bit of, you know, oh, Christina's so flaky and she's so undependable, like, or non-dependable and you can't count on her and things like that. I did get a lot of that. And I don't know if that's because they didn't see a lot of the true horrors of what was happening to me because that was all in private. If I was very sick, I didn't want anyone to see me. I would just go be by myself in my room, you know, sometimes for days on end, I wouldn't see my friends. I wouldn't see my boyfriend. I would just be off by myself because I didn't want people to see that. And one part of it is it's just very difficult to be that vulnerable. And another part of it is it's scary when you don't know what's happening to your own body. It's like you are deteriorating. You don't know why you're deteriorating so far. No one can help you. And it's just terrifying. So I got it a lot from teachers. I got it a little bit from friends, um, but employers, I think that was another thing too. Um, I always had a job in college. So that was another place where it was very hard to have them understand that just because I might look okay, I'm, I'm not actually okay. So now when you had teachers, doctors, friends, and employers all suggesting to you that there was nothing wrong with you, that it was in your head, did it at any point cause you to doubt yourself? Did you ever for a moment doubt whether or not you were really sick? No, it did not phase me. Truly not for a single second. And I... Personally, I believe it's because I had the support of my parents. They obviously, um, they know me very well. <laughs> They're my parents. They know that I am a determined, social, vibrant, happy person. And I would never trade that in for this quality of life that I was living. I, I would never do that. And they believed me. And so I had their support constantly. And so they were behind my back and they were helping me to research and they were helping me to figure out what next doctor I needed to go to. And so with their support behind me, I just never doubted it for a single second. I knew, I knew I was going to figure it out and I was determined to do it. When you say you knew you were going to figure it out, did, did you at any time doubt whether or not you were going to get better? Yes, I will tell you a hundred percent when, by the time I got to the point where I finally got diagnosed, I was at such a breaking point with my health that it could not have come at a better time. At that point, I thought this is just going to kill me. This is going to be it for me because I couldn't believe it started getting more of a rapid deterioration towards the end. And I just couldn't believe how sick I was. I could, I was 80 pounds, completely emaciated skin and bones in so much pain. I had so many neurological symptoms. So I could barely drive a car. I could barely ride in a car. I was having seizures. And I thought, oh my gosh, like we're not going to get to it in time. And that was a huge fear for me. I, I, I really, in my heart believed it. And that was probably the scariest point because I thought, okay, you know, I'm sure that there is an answer to this, but can we get there in time? So Share with us how the deterioration developed. We, we've talked about how you sort of fought and felt during your freshman year in college, but give us the rest of what your college experience was like and how your developing symptoms were impacting your college experience. Yes. Okay. So uh, I had mentioned that kind of the after the fatigue, the stomach things started, and those were just 
horrible. Um, and on top of having the, the stomach problems a little bit later, it, and a lot of people will definitely relate to this with Lyme disease. It's very much like something new kind of comes on top of what you already have. And it's something random. And then you start looking in another direction because you think it's another direction or you think it's something else. So I started to have issues with feeling dizzy when I got up. I felt really faint when I stood up. I thought I was going to pass out. Sometimes I did pass out. And so I went to the doctor, of course, again. And they were like, you know what? You just need B12 injections. You're just low on B12. It's a college thing. We'll just, you know, we'll, we'll just, we'll just do that. And I happened to have a friend who was in med school. And so I would just go to him and he would give me B12 injections. And I was like, all right, cool. This is going to solve my problem. I'm going to be back to normal. And that didn't happen. That didn't, it didn't do a single thing for me. And so then I started to have more issues with my heart. It would be kind of fluttering. I would stand up and it would be thumping and I knew something was wrong there too. And so I went down the rabbit hole, you know, for, finding cardiologists who would be able to help me. And then finally I found one who understood POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, um, which I'm sure a lot of people with Lyme disease understand. And truthfully, that was the first moment when I thought maybe I had all my answers, honestly, because, um, you know, POTS can affect your GI system. Um, it can affect all kinds of things because it's restricting blood flow and your blood flow isn't going where it needs to go. So you can have trouble digesting your food and you can have all these, all these issues with migraines. Cause I, I was having very persistent migraines too. And I, it felt like maybe this could be the answer because my doctor was like, listen, this is, this is covering everything. So I'm going to give you my Dodgerin. I was given my, my Dodgerin and compression stockings. And I thought, you know, maybe this is going to be it. At the same time, I was told very clearly that this is a syndrome. So they really told me, you know, this is a syndrome, meaning it's a collection of symptoms for something. We don't know why this is happening though. So you should probably still figure out why it's happening. And I knew that, but I was like, listen, if this helps, I don't care. I just want to be normal. I just was so desperate for that. And so of course those things did help my quality of life. But as soon as those things that I was taking the mitodrin for would help, meaning that I could stand up and not faint and I was able to um, stand and not feel lightheaded and not have my heart racing, then everything else started piling on. So I started to have more severe stomach problems. I had sensitivity to light. I had sensitivity to sound, to motion. Um, I started getting seizures. I started having um, nighttime seizures very specifically, which were terrifying. Um, they would happen. They were frontal lobe seizures. As soon as I would fall asleep, like as soon as I would just start to fall asleep, they would hit. And, um, and so I went through a period in college where I would set an alarm to wake me up every 30 minutes. So I would not, so I would miss that window where I could have the seizure, <laughs> which is just looking back. I don't know how I got through any of that, but I just was like, I have to do something. I can't have these nighttime seizures. I have school to go to. And so Really, everything started to deteriorate from there. I started to have air hunger, which at the time I didn't know what it was, but I would feel like I couldn't breathe. And I, I went to the ER multiple times for that, thinking that something was wrong with me. And they told me, you know, everything's fine. Everything looks great. Um, and 
all of those things came together and just kept getting worse and worse to where I was constantly exhausted. I would run fevers for no reason. I would have the chills. I would have migraines. I would have horrible stomach cramps. I would barely eat anything and I would be in in a ball of pain. I was sensitive to movement. I was having the seizures at night. It was just so many things all came together. And then once they were all together, they just got worse and worse and worse as time went on and less, I, I was able to manage it less. And again, you know, I still truly at this time believe that they were separate issues. I believed that one was POTS. I believed that one was just seizures. I believed that, um, you know, these were, my stomach was just IBS or something of that nature. So I just thought, my gosh, I just have all these different conditions. And so each one of them I was managing in different ways to try to get through college, but gosh, it was really tough at the end. So Christina, is this what the doctors were telling you that each specialist you went to see was saying it was, it's just a seizure uh, and that's, that's what's causing your seizures, but it's not related to your other symptoms like your your um, sensitivity to light and motion and things like that? Or were the doctors Mm -hmm. just sort of throwing their hands up in the air like, we don't know what's going on? So I got a mix of both. Um, Whenever I started seeing a, the neurologist, for example, um, for the, the, all of the different neurological issues I was having. So like the migraines, the sensitivity to light, this, that. um, I had a few who, of course they did an MRI and they're like, well, I don't know, maybe you just have aura migraines. They prescribed me some medication for that. And then when that didn't work, they were like, well, we don't know what else is is going on. So then I was like, okay, well then I'll see another neurologist who's going to look into this better because something is going on. Something is wrong with my brain. I can tell. Um, so they really were just trying to kind of give me band-aids, but either not answering the question fully and not understanding what was going on or whenever I would try the medication for it and it didn't seem to help, they didn't have any answers. So it really was a combination of that. And I got this from cardiologists, you know, prior to being diagnosed with POTS and you know, I got this from a lot of GI doctors. I went to a lot of endocrinologists as well. I started having horrible issues, you know, hormonally with my thyroid, all kinds of things. And it was, it it was a mixed bag. Sometimes they would look to see what's going on with me and they couldn't find anything really conclusive or they would try something and it wouldn't work. And I knew that we were not on the right track. So I would have to go somewhere else and keep investigating. So Christina, you mentioned that you really felt at this time that you just had all of these individual conditions, but when the medication and the treatment for these conditions weren't working, I'm sure you had some sort of doubt whether or not you had all of these wide variety of conditions that are so different from each other. Yeah. It's funny because my dad was the, he, from the get-go, I'm telling you from the get-go, he was the one who said, Christina, you're going to find out one day that all of these are related. I'm positive that they're related. He was so sure of it from so early on And he has no medical training of any sort. And, but he just really felt in his heart of hearts. And um, he actually used to watch, I don't know if you all ever saw this show. It was on the Discovery Channel. Um, It was, I think it was called Mystery Diagnosis or Diagnosis Mystery. And it was all of these mysterious medical conditions and people would tell their story of how they got diagnosed. And my dad was determined to figure out what was wrong with me. And he bought every single season that there was on iTunes and he would watch it religiously. And if anyone's story even kind of mirrored mine, he would make a note of it and we would research it and see if it's that because he was so convinced that all of these would come together for something. So he was really the one who 
kind of kept that in the back of my mind. But again, you know, I was so used to, you know, growing up around my mom, who's a physician and, you know, just in general, I was just so used to the individual problems in a separate bracket that that's what I believed. So at what point did Lyme come on the table for you? Because this is now a five-year journey for you from the time you were 18 to you were 23 with all of these developing conditions. Mm-hmm. When was Lyme brought on the table for a potential root cause to all of these symptoms? So the way that it happened, I think that this is kind of an, an interesting story, but I will definitely keep it short, is um, I had, after I graduated from the University of Louisville, I had already actually been accepted into FIDM, which was the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in Los Angeles. And so I was pretty sick. I really was not doing well, but it was my dream to go to that school. I couldn't believe I got accepted. They take so few out-of-state students. So I was like, I have to go. So I went, um, I went in 2010 and that semester there, I, I barely made it through. My dad actually had to move to California to help me. He had to take me to class and pick me up and do everything for me because I just wasn't able to do it. And after that first semester, we knew I was too sick. And so we agreed that I would go virtual. I would move back to Kentucky and I would devote my time to just going to doctors. That's it. That would be my job. I'm not doing anything. I would just go to doctors. And so I started seeing doctors and, um, I, like I had told you all before, I always had a job. I'm, I'm someone, I need a purpose. I'm driven. I like to work. And so I started looking for a part-time job. So my time was basically split. It was going to be split, you know, half working, half going to doctors, period. That's it. I was just, that's how it's going to be. And so um, I happened to get a job with my psychology background, uh, working with children who have special needs. So it was this um, after-school program, and it was pretty pretty wonderful. Um, all kinds of children with very special needs were there, and we worked with them. Um, to those children tend to be very uh, visually hypersensitive. They tend to be very hypersensitive to motion, to movement, various things. They get very over over triggered, and so. The purpose of that was a rehabilitation to help take that down a little bit for them, their sensitivity. So that's what I was hired to do. And um, during my training, my boss wanted to show me what their program was that they run on the computer to uh, have the children take. It's a visual acuity test. It's to see where they are when they start the program. And then they repeat the test at the very end so they can see the change. And since I would be administering this to children, she wanted me to be an expert on how to work it. So she said, I'm going to have you take the test because if you take it, then from there, you'll know how to administer it. I was like, okay, great. So I take this visual acuity test and I failed it. I completely failed it. And I didn't think much of it, uh, but my boss was very concerned. And she actually took me aside and sat me down and she said, I'm telling you a healthy adult should not be failing this. I, I don't know what's going on, but you need to be checked out. And at that point I told her, you know, yeah, I mean, I had been having some pretty severe issues with um, neurological symptoms and um, motion sickness, but the kind of motion sickness, it's, it, it felt different to me because if I would push it too far, it would trigger a seizure. So I knew something wasn't quite right. And so she said, you need to see a neuro ophthalmologist. That's what she had said to me. So I said, okay. So I did that. So I got in with a neuro ophthalmologist in Tennessee and I was there for about three days and he ran a battery of tests, brain scans. He would put various, um, he would attach kind of various wires onto my brain. And then he would have me look at things visually and do tests, all kinds of stuff, just everything imaginable. 
And at the end of it, he told me that, you know, he showed me that I have some brain damage in my brain. And he's asked if I'd ever been in, in an accident of any sort. And I said, no, because I, I hadn't. And I know we couldn't understand where that was coming from. And he said, you know, if it's not an external cause, it's going to be an internal cause. And I was like, what do I do with that? And he said, you know, I, I know this doctor he described to him as being like a very doctor house kind of doctor. He, his specialty is taking on hard to treat patients and he will run a battery of tests and he will get to the bottom of what's going on. And truthfully, at this point, I was so tired. I had seen so many doctors. I didn't believe it, but I was like, fine, I will go anything to just figure this out. So he recommended me to this doctor um, also in Tennessee. I went to see him a couple of weeks later. I again was there for a couple, quite a few days getting blood tests ran. He took my entire health history. It was the most comprehensive appointment I've ever had with a doctor in my life. It felt like he really wanted to know everything that I had been through my whole life to get a whole picture. And um, I didn't know what he was testing me for. Truthfully, he took <laughs> like 20 tubes of uh, blood that day uh, over the course of the, that time because they were testing so many things. Didn't know what. So uh, uh, he said, okay, we will call you with the, with the results. So went back to my, you know, where I was living. Everything was great in Kentucky. I want to say maybe two weeks later, I get a phone call and he says, you know, um, you have, you have Lyme disease. And I was like, well, what's that? And he said, oh, you know, it's spread by a tick and he explained it and I Googled it. So when you Google Lyme disease, what comes up is acute Lyme disease. And I was like, well, yeah, but like, I'm not having these current symptoms and it's in my stomach and it's this and that. And I, I, I didn't believe it. I truly didn't. I thought I'm not an outdoorsy person. I, I was in just denial at that point. I thought there's just no way. And he was like, just, just trust me. Let's schedule an appointment. Let's go over your results. And so I trusted him. I went there and uh, that's actually when um, he actually did the Fry Labs, Fry Laboratories test on me. He ran uh, quite a few, but he ran the Fry Laboratories test. And one of those tests, they actually do a blood smear. So they take some of your blood. Um, they put a special coating agent on it so they can see it. They smear it. They look at it under a microscope. And so he actually had a photo for me. <laughs> he had a photo of where they found this bloodborne parasite in my blood, um, it was called protomyxoa. And he pointed to it and he was like, I just want you to know, like you do have an infection, it's right here. And then he showed me, of course, my CD57 levels. He showed me the igenics, everything else. And he was like, you have Lyme disease. And that was the moment when I, it all clicked and I accepted it. And I thought, oh my gosh, like I just, I couldn't have been more shocked by that diagnosis truly. So Christina, a few follow-up questions on that. So many of our past guests have used labs like Igenix and Armin Labs and even local labs like LabCorp and Quest, but we haven't heard about Fry Labs. So can you tell us, was the Fry Labs test covered by insurance? Is that a lab you would recommend to others who are looking to see if they have Lyme disease? Um, yeah, so it's not covered by insurance. And uh, truly, I think, um, I think at this point, if you're a Lyme patient, you are shocked if someone says something's covered by insurance, you're like, excuse me, can you say that again? Are you sure? Because most things are not. So it was not covered, unfortunately. Um, however, uh, I, I do really love the lab. They have a couple of different tests. I think what sets them apart is even 
gosh, even back in 2011, which is actually when I was diagnosed, um, they did DNA or PCR testing. I don't know if they were one of the first, but they did PCR testing. Um, so basically that looks for the DNA of the various, um, bacteria, co-infections, et cetera, in your blood. So I had that panel done and that is the one which flagged Bartonella and it flagged the Lyme disease. And then they do, like I had said, the blood smear, which I think is truly fascinating because they're able to really look and see, um, what's going on in your blood. And actually you, I, you could see the biofilm. So where the biofilm was as well. Um, you could see where the actual protomyxoa, uh, is, was there as well. It's like a protozoa slash parasite. So being able to see it visually is fascinating to me, especially when it comes to biofilms and some of these things that might kind of get through other testing. So I would definitely, I would highly recommend it probably in conjunction with some other tests, of course. I think the CE57 is incredible. I think Igenix is incredible, but I really, really love Fry Labs. Um, I've had a great experience with them. So Christina, from what we understand, and to put it simply, biofilm is really like a blob of a substance with the Lyme bacteria hiding inside of it, which makes yeah. it harder for medication to get through and get to the Lyme bacteria. So can you tell us what it was like to see that as a visual? Because we've never heard that before. Yeah. Well, that would, to me, it was, I mean, all of this was brand new, right? So going back to that, it was when I, when, when he was telling me all of this and I'm trying to process it all, right? It's a lot. You're just, you're getting all this information. Um, but what helped me is my doctor was really great about saying, okay, do you see this? This is causing X, Y, or Z. So for me, I always had, um, like very sludgy, thick, sludgy blood. So I always had issues if I would go get blood work done, they would have a hard time finding a vein. And they always commented like, your blood is so thick and how strange. And I always had, um, my feet were kind of purple. <laughs> and it was actually the first thing that the doc my doctor who diagnosed me noticed is he was like, are your feet always purple like this? And I was like, yeah. And I would have like, kind of my legs would have that kind of mottled spotted look to it from the, the bad, poor circulation. And I would have it on my, the back of my arms. And so he was basically saying to me that this biofilm makes my blood very thick. And that is what is causing the purple kind of all over my body. And so for me, it helped to be able to connect those, um, especially being someone who's very new to all of this to understand, oh, so this is causing these symptoms or this that I can see. So it was pretty interesting, but I mean, a lot to take in. So we also know, Christina, that the CD57 markers when they do blood work are often used by Lyme literate doctors to use as a signal to determine if you have Lyme or not. But can you talk to us more about what the CD57 marker is and what your results were for your blood work? Yes. So, um, so yes, my doctor ran the CD57 level, um, which basically that is a natural killer cell and uh, you have all kinds of different of these NK cells in your body. And this specific one is quite specific to Borrelia. So if you have an infection of Lyme disease, then your natural killer cells will be depleted. They will be quite low because they are being used up trying to go after the infection, the Lyme infection very specifically. So it's usually used as a marker to kind of see where patients are at. So um, the normal level for that, I believe the, the low normal starts at 75. And mine was, gosh, I wanna tell you this correctly. I believe 14, I believe it was 14. 
was very low. And so that was also another confirmation that my NK cells were depleted because they were, and, and chronically depleted too as well, because when you have chronic Lyme disease, you've had it for so long, it's just so depleted. So um, yes, that was another piece of the puzzle. And I know a lot of doctors do look at that uh, with chronic Lyme patients because it can be a pretty good marker of where someone is. And I'm, I'm going to mispronounce this word, but we have not heard about the co-infection protomazoa before, which I'm not pronouncing correctly. Can you tell <laughs> us more about what that co-infection is and how your doctor described it to you? Yes. Okay. So it's pronounced protomyxoa. And I believe it was actually discovered by Fry Laboratories. So I, of course, have never heard of it prior to that either, but it is a bloodborne parasite. So it is similar to Babesia. It's quite similar to it. Not exactly, but um, maybe like a cousin of it, if I had to kind of um, say it. It's typically, they at the time I was told that it's believed to be passed by mosquitoes. So, um, but then they later had learned that also ticks can carry them as well. So uh, like I said, I hadn't at the time very much heard very much about it. And the problem with that was that as far as treatment, they were still kind of trying to figure it out. So they were trying to figure out, okay, do we go full, like hitting it with an, with an antiparasitic or do we kind of mix it up? And that also is, um, it, it thrives off of fats. So fats in your food is what helped to feed it. And so a lot of people think you have to go on a no fat diet and then treat it that way. And there was just all these at the time, there wasn't a good treatment plan for it. And so I knew I had it, but it was one of those like, all right, we'll handle that later because we don't know what the heck to do about that. Um, but I will tell you since then, I've met hundreds of people through my blog who also have protomyxoa and um, it's like a little community on there now. <laughs> so it seems like to me, uh, to sidestep for a second, that many people could have this, this protomyxoa and not even know it. And I think about when, when you're bit by a tick and you send away for testing, many people have this false security that they, they didn't get anything from that tick bite. But as we know, we're finding more and more things aren't tested for when these companies test your ticks. So I think this is just another, another reason why, yes, tick testing is good and it can help you give you a little bit of peace of mind, but it's not 100% accurate to say that you didn't necessarily catch something, a tick-borne disease from that tick bite. Yep, 100%, I agree. So now that you're being treated by the real life Dr. House and you know all this great information about what's going on with you, you can really comprehend and understand what's, what's happening. What was the treatment protocol that you now would prescribe to move forward and treat your Lyme disease and co-infections? Yes. So, um, so I got my diagnosis um, in September of 2011. And at that time I was living by myself um, in an apartment uh, about three hours away from my uh, parents. And the first step that my doctor wanted me to do was to change my diet and detox. I was in pretty bad shape. Truthfully, at this time, I was skin and bones. I was very underweight. Um, I was really struggling and he knew that treatment would be pretty tough for me. So he wanted, if he could, to kind of strengthen me up a little bit, so to speak. So he put me on a detox protocol and he asked me to change my diet. So I would remove these high inflammatory foods that were causing me a lot of problems and, um, try to put on some weight. So that was really the first order of business for me to do. And I will tell you, I was a little bit in denial in the beginning. Um, I don't know if it was just like a fear mechanism or a survival mechanism, but once I was diagnosed with Lyme disease, of course, 
I started researching it. And so I watched Under Our Skin. I read various books and it freaked me out. So at first I was like very, very resistant to starting treatment. And I, I, I knew I needed to, but I just was so fearful. I, I heard all these people say, you know, oh, you lose your friends and your independence and this and that. And I just was unwilling to do that. So for like a good four months, I tried to do it on my own. Um, in my own apartment, I tried to just detox and like not eat gluten and not eat sugar and try to put on weight and it wasn't working. I was just falling more and more apart. So in January of 2012, I called my parents and I was like, please just come pick me up. I can't do this anymore. They came, they picked me up. They brought me to their house, put me in bed and I crashed. I, I for months, I did not move from that bed. And if I got out of bed, I needed help to even walk to the bathroom. Uh, my mom had to wash my hair for me. Uh, you know, I had to get sponge baths at some point. They would, it was just, I didn't realize how sick I was until I crashed. And then that was, it was just that moment when I was, it all hit me. I was like, oh no, this is not good. Um, and so with that, again, came the thing that I needed to start treatment, but I was just, in such bad shape. And so we tried, I tried taking some antibiotics. That's how it all started. Um, and because I had so many stomach problems, underlying stomach problems, I, my stomach was not tolerating the antibiotics. I was taking them orally. They were making me <clears throat> very sick to my stomach. I had horrible symptoms from them, neurological symptoms, this, that. And so we kept trying to go that route and it, it wasn't working. And so um, in a sense, it kind of made me worse at that time. So for a while, um, we kind of had to figure out a new game plan. So I was put back on detoxing. I started getting actually weekly lymphatic massages, which were a complete godsend for me. And I started um, doing more intensive uh, detoxing and that started to be a little bit helpful. And I was put, put on a liquid diet. So I started to put on a little bit of weight and Finally, around the summer of 2012, I was strong enough to be able to officially start my first uh, treatment uh, with, with Desbio, which we can talk about if you'd like. Yeah, if we could jump into that, your treatment with Desbio and, and what that is and what it was like for you to go on this treatment. Yes. So I, I just love, I, I truly love this treatment. Um, I, I cannot believe it's not kind of more widely talked about it. I mean, I talk about it on my blog. I get a lot of questions about it, but the company is called Deseret Biologicals and uh, I will call it Desbio for short because that is kind of how they go by, but they have something called a series therapy and it's an immunological treatment. So it uses your own immune system to target the Lyme bacteria. Um, and I'm sure what a lot of you do know is that Lyme disease is fantastic at evading the immune system. It's so good at it. It can kind of mutate a little bit. Um, it's, it's often shocking to people that they could have chronic Lyme disease and that their, their body doesn't have the antibodies that's just killing it off. You know, your people kind of don't understand that because when you get a cold or when you get the flu, right, your body makes the antibodies, takes care of it, and then you're a-okay, or you get strep throat, X, Y, Z. And with Lyme disease, especially with, 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 I mean, once you get to, to, the, to the chronic case, uh, that's not happening. So um, it's evading the immune system, whether it's hiding in biofilm or you, your body just is not making antibodies for it because the Lyme disease kind of turned off 
that action. So it can just freely multiply and burrow into different tissues and X, Y, Z. And that's the huge part of the problem with Lyme disease. I believe that's what makes it so difficult to treat. So the way it works, if I just would say this in the most simple, pure form is I would compare it a little bit to a vaccine because what it is, is it's, um, the treatment comes in these little tiny little vials and they have the dead slash inactivated Lyme bacteria in it. Um, and you take these little vials, you put it under your tongue, uh, you hold it there for a minute and you swallow it. And what it does is basically it, it revs up your immune system. It's, it suddenly shows your immune system. Oh, hello. Look, we have this here. You need to make antibodies for this right now. And so your body, which for so long was not making antibodies, starts to make antibodies to the Lyme disease. It starts to see the Lyme disease in your body and it starts to attack it. And the treatment is pulsed. So every three days you do a dose. Um, each dose has a little bit of a different frequency of the, um, the dead bacteria in it. And it's, it's pretty interesting how it works. Um, I would say the benefits of it are that there are no side effects. And I say that meaning that of course you're going to herx. Everyone herxes at different levels. But what I'm saying is when you take antibiotics or really anything, truthfully, it has its own separate side effects, like separate from the herxing. You can have XYZ side effect. With this, it's just turning your immune system on. It's pointing it to where it needs to go to attack. And um, so there are no kind of separate side effects. Of course, there's the herxing. So uh, it's really interesting how it works. And these antibodies are small enough that they can cross the blood-brain barrier. I know that's a huge issue. Sometimes things can't cross blood-brain barriers, but antibodies can, um, and they can get into biofilms. So uh, it, it makes it, it's just really, it's so fascinating. I could go on and on about this, but I love, I love how it works. <laughs> so Christina, how long were you on this desbio treatment for? And give us an idea of what it was like, what you were like when you first started the treatment as far as your limitations and what you were like mm -hmm. when you finished the treatment as far as things you could do that you couldn't have done in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So I first started, the very first thing I actually treated was Bartonella with this same series therapy. So my doctor really believed in getting the co-infections first. So we started with Bartonella and um, I personally had the classic Bartonella rashes. So I don't know if you've ever seen them. They look a little bit like cat scratches, truthfully. That's why it's called cat scratch <laughs> disease, but they look like little kind of scratches on you. So um, whenever you have a lot of co-infections, truthfully with Lyme disease, it is very difficult to figure out what symptom goes with what. I'm sure everyone can relate to this. You don't know they're all intermingled. You're just guessing. So when I went into it, I didn't know what specific symptoms I was looking that could change, but um, I, I definitely could look to the rashes, I guess I should say. So I started the treatment for that um, mid 2012 and um, it was definitely tough. The herxing was very rough. Um, I, I really struggled through it, um, but I got through it. I think I did, oh gosh, I think I spent four or five months treating the Bartonella like that. Um, and I will say that what is a little bit different about immunological treatments is you do need to kind of wait a little bit of time for the dust to, to settle because what I'm doing is activating my immune system over and over and over and over again. And then it's going in and it is 
attacking, in this case, the Bartonella over and over and over and over again. So when I finished treatment, I still felt pretty rough because there was, I was herxing horribly because I've been killing all this, like all these bacteria, just hitting it for months. So I knew that there was a period where kind of the smoke had to clear and, you know, all those things had to happen. So I had a little bit of a break. However, I, from that point on, I stopped having any of the Bartonella rashes. They were completely gone. Um, I noticed that my stomach was a little bit improved um, in terms of what I could eat and digest. Cause prior to that, I was just living on these at home shakes that my parents made. And um, so, yeah, I was like, okay, things are, things are looking up. This is great. Then I had to prepare myself to start treating the Lyme disease. So then we went into that to treat the Borrelia and I started treating that. I got maybe two months into it and I was unfortunately hit with um, a C. C. difficile infection. And at that point I had to stop because the C. diff, I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with it. It is um, an infection that you get in your uh, colon and it can be pretty severe. And so you don't want your immune system compromised for it. So I had to stop the, the immune treatment. Unfortunately, I had no choice because if I didn't do that, then I couldn't treat the C. diff. So um, yeah, that was a little bit of a hiccup. Um, it took me six months, I want to say maybe six months to get over, uh, the C. diff. It was a long road, um, for me to do it. Um, it can be a very persistent infection, but once that was taken care of, and then I was stronger, I went back to the treatment again. And then again, I did, gosh, I'm trying to think back another one, two, maybe like another three months of it. If I'm thinking correctly, uh, the, the treatments come in boxes and each box is, is a one month treatment. So I'm thinking like that. Um, and typically the way that it works is typically patients will do between four to six boxes of this treatment. So, um, you, you take the vials, they're, they're numbered one to 10. And so they are the lowest frequency to the highest frequency. So you take one dose, one to 10 or one box and the next one from 10 to one and then one to 10. So you're kind of alternating like this. So I want to say I did another three treatments. And so, uh, I will say that at the end of that, I, things really started to look up for me. I, felt like my life was coming back to me. I had more energy. I, my stomach was doing a lot better. Um, I was able to drive and go places which were prior to it. Um, movement and motion would give me horrible, um, seizures. And so I could drive and I could start to kind of go places and I had energy coming back and, things were so great. And so, um, 2014 was a really great, in that sense, healthier for me. I felt like things were going up. I definitely still spent 60% of my day in bed, 60, 70%. So I'm, I don't want to overstate how great everything was, but from where I was to where I was then I was at a healthy weight. And I was, I felt like, gosh, everything was, you know, kind of going up for me. I was doing quite well. Um, it was, it, it was a big, it was a very obvious change, especially for my family who had just watched me prior, like in a bed, having to bathe me. So, so Christina, that's a pretty significant improvement. But mm -hmm. one question that came to mind while you were explaining that was, mm -hmm. we've heard of many people get C. diff from long-term antibiotic use, but you said that you weren't really on antibiotics because of you had you had that adverse reaction. 
Mm-hmm. So is there something that you were taking to treat the Lyme that you think could have caused a C. diff? Um, I don't think so. So I think what it was, I pretty consistently needed to get IV, IV therapy for, um, hydration. So I would get dehydrated. My electrolytes were all over the place. And so I actually had a home health nurse and, uh, they would come at least every two weeks, they would put a port, like just a kind of catheter right here in my arm, kind of in the crook of my arm. They would leave it there for four days and I would get lactated ringers and potassium, magnesium, whatever I needed to kind of be able to survive in that sense. And um, I picked it up from that. Unfortunately, one of my home health nurses had a patient that didn't know that they had C. diff and yeah, the rest was history. So it was not from Lyme, from Lyme disease treatment or anything of that nature. It was just kind of one of those, um, because I was on, of course, the serious therapy, which my immune system was working so, so, so hard. Um, but it was lowered because of the state that it was in. And I just, you know, just caught it. And I do want to point out, Christina, that if anybody listening wants to learn more about this bio, you actually did a blog post on your beautiful blog that we'll put in the show notes so people can go learn more about the DesBio um, immunotherapy treatments. And so talk to us more about now you're feeling better. You're still sleeping a lot, but your quality of life is, is much, much better. How does your health progress from that point forward? Yeah. So I, uh, I was just so happy to have a glimmer of my life back. I was just so happy that I could leave the house and like go to Hobby Lobby with my mom and buy stuff to make crafts or, you know, just the little pleasures in life, go get Froyo and, you know, even though that would really exhaust me, I thought, well, gosh, I couldn't do this for so long. I mean, I'm just, everything's improving. And I don't know if I did too much too soon, to be really honest with you. Um, I also, at this time period, to kind of get everything even better, I did something called advanced cell training. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, um, but it was kind of the two things coupled, I think, together, because that treat that particular treatment made me, it did not go well for me. It made me very sick. And I think I maybe was just doing too much too soon. But at the end of 2014, I horribly relapsed, unfortunately. And um, it was kind of like a slow car crash in the sense that I knew it was happening. Every, I was just getting worse and worse. Everything started backsliding And I was desperately trying to swim against the currents and trying to, you know, go back to everything I knew to be good. I detoxed, I rested, I changed my diet. I did this, I did that. And nothing was working. It just, it just wasn't working. Um, And we couldn't figure out what was going on. And, you know, of course, at the time, my doctor thought, oh, you know, I'm relapsing from, from Lyme disease, like specifically from Lyme disease. And uh, we, Uh, checked my CD57 levels and they were higher than they had ever been before, believe it or not. And my symptoms were also different this time in the sense that it was very neurological. I would sometimes just be shaking like a leaf. There was no rhyme or reason for it. Just my whole body would just be trembling and I would be shaking. It felt like someone plugged my nervous system into an outlet. That's the best way to describe it. And a lot of the neurological things got very, very prevalent. And it was it, the way that it presented was more aggressive than I had ever felt anything before. Um, just right out the gate, my symptoms were just completely, I mean, again, completely debilitating, but it felt like it just happened so fast and the neurological things were so strong. So um, yeah, I, I had relapsed and again, we didn't really know what was going on. And it was around that time that 
you know, my doctor had mentioned to me, you know, um, we never treated the protomyxoa and what I was going through then specifically were very classic symptoms of the protomyxoa. Um, and so the conclusion with that was that I definitely did too much too fast. My body was not ready for it. And, uh, me being in a state where I guess the Bartonella and the Lyme disease was, you know, kind of more under control and doing well, it was like the perfect setting for the protomyxoa to just be able to thrive. And so that really, really took me down. And, um, yeah, I just, I had a really hard time, um, even finding my, my baseline footing at that point, because things got very, very severe for me at the end of 2014, early 2015, I was having recurrent pancreatitis. Um, my liver and kidneys were very strained. My pancreas was very strained. Um, you know, my doctors were worried that they were going to start shutting down. It was just, it was a very, very tough time. Um, after that relapse. So Christina, at this time, were you still treating with the, who I'll refer to throughout this interview as the Dr. House of uh, the real world? Yes, 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 I was. I was still working with him. Um, Truly, he was, he was baffled at first too. I will tell you. Um, He also was like, what's going on? You know, he ordered a bunch of blood work. My home health nurses came and took it. And he was trying to kind of figure out what was happening. And, you know, his first suggestions were to kind of go back to the things that helped me before. So he suggested that I, you know, detox and he suggested that I change my diet and he suggested, you know, all kinds of things thinking that maybe it's just something like that. And when that wasn't working um, and he checked my CD 57 levels and he realized that they were great. So meaning that he did not believe it to be the Lyme disease doing this that's when it dawned on him, of course, that it was the protomyxoa. And, um, at that point I was in such bad shape that I had tried to do some anti-parasitic treatments and my body just could not tolerate it. Um, I just was way too weak and sick. And so I was in a really bad spot for a while there because it's like, what do you do? Right. You need to treat this because you're getting worse. But even the most gentle herbals, my body was just the herxes were completely unbearable. And, you know, I was calling my nurse all hours of the morning and, you know, I had a team here with me like all throughout the night and trying to, you know, help me out. And do we take her to the ER? Do we not take her to the ER? And this was happening constantly. And so um, I had a really hard time climbing out of that to just even be at a state where I could tolerate um, doing some anti-parasitic treatments. So Christina, is Pridomyxoa a parasite? Yes. So it is a bloodborne parasite. Um, so it's, uh, I think I had mentioned maybe that it's similar to Babesia. Um, it's, I guess like a close cousin of it, but it does tend to be more neurological, um, in its symptoms in comparison to just regular Babesia. And that's one of the things that's been put on our radar more recently by, uh, Krista Nanos, who we recently interviewed, that not only you have to worry about bacteria and viruses, but you have the parasitic component of a tick-borne disease as well, or tick-borne illness. And ticks can spit in a ton of parasites into you as well, as you noted with this Pridomyxoa. So I think a little chunk of advice here is if people are still sick and they're treating Lyme and they think they're doing better, they should look at parasites as another option that may be keeping them sick if they feel they're treating Lyme correctly. Yeah, 100%, I agree. 
So how did you proceed if you if your body wouldn't even respond to these gentle herbs and you really couldn't do anything and you were so vulnerable at that point physically, how did you proceed to get over this this really low point in your healing journey? Yeah, gosh, that was um, I really tried just about everything. Um, I, you know, we were trying to just get my body somewhat stronger and just somewhat just stabilized and just stop the constant pancreatitis. Like we just need all of these organs to just kind of come back down so that we can kind of go to something. And, um, I tried, um, I did biofeedback treatments. Um, there was someone, <clears throat> she was incredible. She would come and she would do lymphatic massages for me. She would do biofeedback treatments with me. Um, they were very gentle. Uh, she would, uh, she recommended that I get a, a infrared sauna. <clears throat> and so I bought one of those wooden infrared saunas and I would get in that. And it was a very slow climb. I mean, just truly just such a slow climb. Um, I also worked with a practitioner who does the, um, it's called Nesh, N-E-S. Um, it's kind of like an energetic thing, I guess. They have various tinctures and drops that have different frequencies infused in them. And so I did those to try to just kind of energetically support my body. That was incredibly um, helpful as well. But it was a slow climb, truly. I just was doing every little teeny tiny thing to bring my body back to a place where I could start parasitic treatment. Um, and it took, oof, I don't know, at least the first like eight months of 2015 for me just to, to try all of these things and just very gently, just very, very gently do them. And um, I was then, I was still pretty sick, but I was able to at least start doing some antiparasitic treatments, which are not fun. <laughs> They're not fun at all. Christina, before we get there, for those listening who don't know what biofeedback is, can you walk us through what that was like in addition to all the other things you did, like the infrared sauna, um, the NESH uh, that you described for us? What was the biofeedback like for you? So um, I might do a really horrible job of describing biofeedback because truly at the time I was so sick that um, her name was Amy. She came over and she said, you know, I studied biofeedback, et cetera, et cetera. I can do this for you. And I was like, great, do it. So basically um, she puts these connectors, I guess, um, onto, there's one kind of connector that goes around your head um, and there's two that go on your wrists and there's two that go on your ankles. And so these are what they use to kind of scan your body field and scan the energetic fields that you have in your body that is connected to a computer and they run a program and this program is run and it to my knowledge I believe that it scans through your body it picks up frequencies of things that maybe should not be there and then it pulls them up to tell you that these are the things in your body I hope I'm doing this justice describing it and so whenever she did the biofeedback treatment um you know, she showed me a few of the different things and, you know, it came up that I had a parasite and it actually still picked up the, the Lyme disease and some inflammation. And it shows you which organs of yours maybe could use a little more support. And so the way biofeedback treatment works, I think some people might actually get some treatments with that done, which uh, could put the correct frequency in their body, maybe to counteract it. But the way that she did it is she would put the frequencies into a liquid, like a water or a liquid or some sort. And then I would drink that. Um, 
kind of throughout the, the, the week, which I know when I'm saying this to some people is going to sound very out there, but it is pretty interesting. I mean, if you think about it, every single thing in your body, every cell, every, everything has a very specific vibration. And, um, so it's just countering that to try to put your body back in the correct vibration. So, um, it's very gentle. It's nothing intense. And so my body could handle it. And it was fascinating to me, but, um, also very helpful. So Christina, for myself personally, when I first heard about biofeedback, Mm -hmm. probably over a year ago with one of our podcast guests, it definitely seemed to be sort of out there. And I didn't know that I really fully believed in it, to be honest, but Mm -hmm. over time and speaking with others and doing research, it is definitely a tool that has helped many people and it shouldn't be discounted because there is value in using biofeedback to help recover from Lyme and other co-infections from a tick bite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So talk to us more now. So you finally got your body ready for the anti-parasitic protocol. What was that like once you started that protocol? Because your body was so weak, you get it strong enough, and now you're hitting it again with another treatment. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, I remember just dreading having to start that because, um, you know, you have to, or for me, my doctor wanted me to take it kind of around the cycles of the moon. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but just the way that parasites are, the way that when they typically tend to hatch and when they typically tend to multiply. And so... Um, I had to start it. I think I started it on a full moon and you kind of pulse it a little bit and then you take some time off and then you go back to, you know, doing it. And so, um, it was, it was tough. I mean, I did it, I guess a little bit more gently. I did it with herbs, um, some like anti-parasitic herbal mixes with wormwood and things of that nature. So I was able to control the pace. So it wasn't, um, it could have been a lot worse, I guess I should say it, but it was, it was tough. Um, I pretty much never slept because parasites are more, most active at night. And, um, so that's when my symptoms would just horribly flare up. And I think that that's probably because they would come out and then the antiparasitics would be attacking them and then I'd be herxing. So, um, it was, it, it, it was tough. It was definitely a very tough treatment to get through. I knew I had to do it. So I was really determined, but it did seem to kind of, for me, at least turn the corner, um, at the end of 2015, it really, at that point, I really felt like, okay, I'm going to be able to pull myself out of this a lot slower granted, but it gave me the hope that I could get out of it. So there's two things I think that you just said that are really noteworthy. And the first is that parasites sort of wake up at night and there Mm -hmm. are a subset of Lyme patients who say that at night, their symptoms are far worse and they can't sleep because of their worsening symptoms. So would you recommend to those subset of people that they look into potentially having a parasitic infection as well as Lyme disease? Yes. I mean, yes, yes, yes. A hundred percent. Because this was for me in college too. Like I had mentioned earlier, the nights were the worst for me and no one could tell me why. I'm like, what is happening at night? It was driving me crazy. I'm like, I don't understand. Like what changes at night? Why at night? And of course, when I learned about parasites, everything all clicked together, but yeah, that's, um, I would highly, highly recommend it if things are flaring at night. Um, I know that also, um, histamine levels raise at night as well. Um, so, uh, for whatever reason, that's the point in time when your mast cells and your histamine is at its highest. So, um, if not parasites, then definitely looking into mast cell issues as well. But those are the two culprits typically from what I, what I've kind of observed of nighttime symptoms. You also said something that 
you had to really gently work up to getting this parasitic treatment first before you even started it. Mm-hmm. And I have personally spoken to a lot of people in the Lyme community who are they have this attitude of, I'm just going to go hardcore and just go full throttle and, and treat. And then mm-hmm. they end up feeling so much worse and have to go off all the medication and feel worse than they did when they started. So would you recommend that people ease into their treatment to find the proper therapeutic level based on your experiences? Yeah, I definitely think so because less is more. And I understand wanting to be determined and do everything. That's how I am. I've always been that way. I would rather just, you know, if, if I had it my way, of course, I would do everything, just hit it hard and do it. But you learn quickly with the body that you can't tell your body what to do, right? So if you have, if you are overdoing it and you are herxing like crazy and the inflammation is just so high, you're, you're only going to hinder, I think in some cases, your ability to get through it because your body can only handle so much. So I would definitely recommend easing into it. I know it's so frustrating because you just want to get it over with. Gosh, can I relate to that? But in the end, I think, uh, I think less is more in this sense. And Christina, did any other new conditions pop up throughout your healing journey, especially during this time when you were treating the parasites? Yeah. So, oh boy. Um, so post post parasitic treatment, um, if we go into 2016, I realized at that point that, um, whatever was going on in my body in terms of actually healing, I had to heal the damage behind it. You know, my mindset the first time around was very simple. It was like, well, just treat the infections and then I'm back to normal. And I did not at that point really kind of understand that the Lyme disease itself can cause such dysfunction in your body, such, such, such dysfunction and, um, underlying issues, whether it's autoimmune conditions, whether it's, um, you know, food sensitivities, gut problems, mast cell inflammation, what have you, and you have to tackle those because if you ignore those and you try to just go about your everyday life, it, it'll catch up to you. And I believe that, you know, a lot of that, I just, I overdid it. The parasitic infection took over. I had all these things. I had mass inflammation. I was very sick. Um, and I did not heal the prior damage from the Lyme disease. So I did, unfortunately, I started to, um, I started to develop, uh, around that time, kind of finishing up that, um, there was a couple things that we did. We had to do mold remediation in my house because we had found that there was some mold. Um, so we did that, which was like a huge thing, but seemed to be helpful. That was another step in kind of improving things. Um, and then around that time was when also my doctor, uh, tested me for uh, mast cell activation disorder, um, because I seemed to be very reactive to absolutely everything that you can think of, um, whether that's something I put in my body, like food, whether it was environmental things around me, I was, breaking out in hives. Um, I already have asthma, I have a history of asthma and my asthma was really bad constantly, even when I was on a lot of my medication uh, for it. And so he tested me for mast cell activation disorder. And I know that that's also kind of a common co-condition that tends to happen to people who have um, tick-borne illnesses. Um, But basically it's when um, you, you have mast cells, everyone has mast cells in their body. These are the cells that release histamines. So whenever your body is faced with something which they believe it to be an invader, of course it sends out the histamines. And uh, the, the mast cells in this condition become very overly sensitive. 
Um, and so the teeniest, tiniest thing causes them to degranulate and send out histamine for every little thing. And um, it's, uh, it's, it was definitely one of those things that once I got tested for that, it helped at least make sense of a lot of the things I was going through in terms of kind of residual or caused by Lyme um, issues that were going on. And Christina, did, did at any point you try anything like um, low-dose immunotherapy or any sort of like immunotherapies aside from the Desbio or Desbio treatments that you mm -hmm. did? Yes. So, so this was actually, um, so, so what had happened <laughs> around this time is I actually um, picked up C. difficile again, yet again. And um, I had a very hard time kicking it. And at that point, my doctor said, you know, you had such success with the series therapy for Lyme uh, and Bartonella. They have a series therapy for C. diff. Do you want to try it? I was like, yeah, of course, let's, let's, let's definitely do it. And so I did it. I used that to treat C. difficile. And honestly, anyone who's been through it, who knows about that knows what a feat it is that something like this could work and it worked and it got rid of the C. diff, which was just incredible. But I had a lot of leftover damage as well in my stomach and, um, my stomach problems were kind of ramping up and getting worse. And I had mast cell issues to everything. And, um, you know, uh, around that time I was introduced to, um, actually, sorry, let me go back a little bit. So uh, as I had C. diff and all of these things were getting worse and worse for me and just in the stomach department, and we were kind of still trying to figure out how to put me back together. We knew I had mast cell issues, of course. And we knew I had all these food sensitivities. Um, I started to get much more severe GI problems, just completely different than what I ever had, like stomach aches that I described to people felt like hunger pains times a thousand. Um, I would double over with these pains and we tried to figure out what it was for quite some time and um, went through a bunch of tests, found out that I had uh, Crohn's disease. I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and um, you know, the, both the doctor that diagnosed me and also my doctor, my doctor house, uh, believed that it was just the damage that having Lyme disease for so long untreated did to my immune system. Um, just, it just deteriorated it. And so for me, um, it presented with uh, Crohn's disease, which a lot of people, you know, classify, I think in like an autoimmune condition, it's when your body is attacking the the cells in your, in your, your colon and your small intestine. And so at that point I was put in a really tough spot because, uh, typically Crohn's disease is treated with, um, steroids and other things that are going to lower your immune system. That's just the way that they do it. They want to kind of, uh, get the autoimmune condition kicked way down. But for me, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do anything like that because, you know, uh, with Lyme disease, granted, yeah, my CD57 levels look great, but we know that currently we don't have a cure for Lyme disease, meaning that it's very likely it's still somewhere in, in my body and my tissues and something. And if you take that immune system down, it's you risk relapsing. And I knew that. And so this is when I was put in this position of what do I do? How do I handle this? How do I get through it? And that is when these immunotherapy treatments came to the surface for me um, as ways to ways to balance my immune system and not having to suppress it and being able to kind of treat both things very delicately and bring them into a balance. So that's how it all started. I actually started with uh, LDI, low dose immunotherapy. 
uh, those injections. And um, it's, I think a lot of uh, patients, you have to really figure out your correct, correct dose with that um, and your correct treatment. And it can take a couple of bad doses, so to speak, before you find the right one for you. So you do have to have patience with that treatment. Um, I think it's great, but I think it has some limitations because of that. Um, so I started out with that and then I, um, kind of added in the low dose naltrexone after, um, doing that also at a, at, at a low dose. And that for me was the first time when I was able to balance the two things. So my Crohn's disease started to kind of, I wasn't in a constant flare. I would still get flares, but it felt like it was more handled a little bit and things with my Lyme disease were starting to kind of stabilize a little bit. So that for me was a big turning point when I realized, okay, so what I have going on in my body now, I need to repair and balance this immune system of mine because it's not, it's not quite right. Like things are definitely not quite right with it. So that was for me, the turning point with that. So it sounds like in a nutshell, the low-dose immunotherapy and the low-dose naltrexone help mm -hmm. sort of restart or reset your immune system, which both mm -hmm. helped your Lyme disease and your Crohn's disease. Yes, correct. Yes. And what's interesting is we've, we've had many, many guests on this podcast, but we've never heard about somebody with Lyme developing or having an actual diagnosis of Crohn's mm -hmm. disease. But do you think that your weakened condition and your Lyme disease actually triggered the Crohn's disease to activate in your, in your body? Do you think there's a correlation between the two? Yes, definitely. I definitely do. Um, I know that Crohn's disease is like one part genetics, one part environmental, and no one else in my family has Crohn's disease. I, I mean, I have some like second cousins that have it, but in my immediate family, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, they had never had it. Um, but it's kind of the perfect storm. You can have the genetics for it. It can be sitting there. And then if you're in the right environmental conditions, it can bring it about. So yeah, a hundred percent, we're positive that it was a Lyme triggered uh, thing for me. So Christina, talk to us more about your use of colloid, um, colloidal silver in your healing journey. Mm -hmm. So for myself, the way that I use colloidal silver might be a little different for other people, but <clears throat> um, this issue with candida and yeast, I know a lot of people fight it, um, especially with Lyme disease, if you're on antibiotics, this or that. And gut health, I was made very aware with this whole thing with Crohn's that I believed, and my doctor had been telling me this for, for ages, that a huge portion for me, the key with me getting well is going to lie in my gut and it's going to lie in my gut health. And, you know, I took probiotics and I did things. So I always had, I always had stomach problems, but it was, I needed to try to find something that would, that, that, that would work, um, all, all, all across the board with candida and would keep it in check and would also keep my body strong and X, Y, Z. And, um, so my doctor had recommended to me that I take uh, one ounce of aloe, aloe vera juice and put a uh, teaspoon to a tablespoon anywhere in there of colloidal silver. And I actually use the Desbio brand called Smart Silver. And I put it into the aloe vera and I drink it on an empty stomach. So that way that it's concentrated going, it kind of holds onto it and goes all the way through the, the GI system. And, um, it's a double whammy cause it helps with candida, but I, it's also going to, for me, keep, um, the various infections at bay. And so I started doing that and I, I still do it. I still do it every single day. I think I'm probably always going to do it because I, 
Canada hasn't been an issue for me in, in years at this point. So um, I think that's, for me, it's been like the golden bullet with that. So is colloidal silver really a multi-purpose tool for somebody with Lyme where it'll prevent the, you know, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and, mm-hmm. and you know, this, this bacteria in your gut, but also help keep the, the Lyme bacteria and co-infection at bay? Yes, yes, mm-hmm. it is, it's twofold. I know some people who use the colloidal silver just, I mean, just purely, of course, they use it at a higher dose than I take it, of course, purely for treating Lyme disease. I've talked to many people for that. So um, at the dose that I take, I take, I put a teaspoon into an ounce of the aloe vera juice, and it's really a two in one. I mean, it has been amazing at keeping, for me personally, all of these things at bay. So even when I'm, you know, going through stuff with my stomach, and I'm trying to heal my body, I'm trying to heal the neurological things and XYZ, um, for me, my infections are totally in check. Um, in that sense, um, I, gosh, I think we checked my CD 57 levels last like a year ago and it was like at 160. Um, it's, and it's sitting really well. And so I, I'm a firm believer that that just, that is kind of an extra layer of helping to keep all of that personally for me at bay. So another question we get often is about peptide therapy, specifically the BPC-157. So have you, have, have you tried that? Do you have any experience with using peptides to treat Lyme disease? I do. Um, so I started the peptide therapy uh, and I did that. I want to actually say it was 2018, I believe. Um, I started doing the peptide therapy and it was actually, sorry, 2019. I take that back. Um, I started doing it for, again, to help my Crohn's disease because Although my general flares were not happening as often, I still was not able to get out of fully out of the cycle of I eat the wrong thing, my Crohn's disease flares up, I have to go on a liquid diet, you know, it's this whole constant thing. And there's always this fear with, especially with Crohn's, I see anything of that nature that the longer the inflammation is kept up there, the more damage you're doing to your colon. And I didn't want to lose part of my colon. I didn't want to go down that road. I was very fearful of it. So Although it was a lot better, I thought, okay, well, what else can I do that's going to be in a similar vein, right? Help my immune system in terms of the various peptide therapies are incredible for for Lyme disease and stuff, but it's also can be really incredible for Crohn's disease. So I'm like, awesome, two in one, this is great. And so uh, the way it works, it is an injection. Um, So you have to inject yourself every single day with it. And I did that for myself. I was giving myself injections in my stomach and it's was great for the Lyme disease, but it, I had the worst, um, Crohn's flare of my, of my life on BPC 157. And, um, I found out later that it seemed to kind of over activate the immune system. It kind of over strengthened the immune system. And it really kicked that into gear for me. Now, why that happened, I don't know. I will say that it's not common for that to happen. In fact, a lot of people use it for Crohn's disease and feel great. Uh, So I really don't know why my body kind of flipped the script on that, but um, it seemed to be helpful for my Lyme disease in the sense that of course my immune system was stronger than ever. However, um, it was at the cost of my Crohn's disease. It was just, yeah, definitely the most severe flare um, I have, I have ever, ever had with that. So there is good and bad. I think that if you, if you don't have something like Crohn's disease or some kind of, uh, you know, autoimmune condition like that, I think that 
you would definitely be much more successful with it. And Christina, hopefully this isn't TMI, but I have to ask about your use of probiotic enemas because we've heard about Mm -hmm. them used before and people have had great success with them. So can you talk to us about how you use them and if they're effective for you? Yeah. So, so for me, I mean, whenever you have something like Crohn's, um, it's going to just, your gut lining is just in horrible shape. I mean, no matter what, even if you don't have the bacteria and stuff there, you have leaky gut, you have all kinds of stuff going on. I had all of that. And so it was not uncommon for me with Crohn's and I had so many absorption, absorption issues that whatever I would take orally, very rarely would it kind of make it into my bloodstream and and work. So even with probiotics, I was taking them orally and they were okay, but they weren't really, you know, they weren't getting down to my colon where I needed it. And my doctor was like, listen, this is going to sound a little strange, but like, why don't you try doing, um, doing it in the form of an enema? And I was like, like a, a retention enema, I should say. So the kind that you like normally enemas are for cleansing, but this is the kind that is not, you put it in a teeny tiny bit of liquid and, um, I said, okay, I'll try it. And so I did that and, um, it surprisingly soothing, surprisingly soothing, helpful. Um, like I said, the, the good probiotics were exactly where they needed to be, which was a godsend. And, um, uh, it was really great. And I, 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 I want to add on to this because I just, I don't know if I had mentioned it prior that, um, so the way that, um, probiotics there are a lot of good things about probiotics, but probiotics also, um, if you have the correct ones, they let out, um, some gases and some amino acids and things, which end up, that's how it helps your stomach lining. And so one of these compounds that these good probiotics make is called butrate. And I think it's like a short chain fatty acid, if I'm not mistaken. And it is basically what calms inflammation in your gut and it repairs your gut lining. And, um, so I was putting the probiotics in, of course, but it, it was helpful, but it didn't feel like it was doing everything it needed to do. And so again, my doctor was like, listen, you can take butrate orally. Of course you can take it orally, but I'm going to suggest that you also get that in the form of, of an enema. And so I did. Um, and I started doing that about a year ago and I haven't had a Crohn's flare in, eight months, nine months. I mean, I've been doing so, so well with that. And so those two things, honestly, putting it right where it needed to be right at the source of it was clutch for me. And once that started to repair, I also was taking butrate orally, probiotics orally, and my leaky gut healed. And um, all of my various food intolerances, I have less and less of them every single day that I, that I can't eat. Um, like I used to be down to eating 10 to 15 foods because everything else was just intolerable to my stomach. And now I can eat a ton of pretty much anything that I would want almost within limit, of course. But, um, yeah, those two things really helped. And I know it's definitely not a conventional thing to say, like do an enema, but Hey, it works. (laughs) Um, it gets things where it needs to go. And it really helped calm down my overactive immune system in my gut is what it did for me personally. So Christina, I could keep you on literally all day, but I have (laughs) one last question before I give it back to Rich, who's been yelling at me via text message to give it back to you. (laughs) (laughs) So um, just give us an idea of where you are at today with your health. I mean, clearly you are so smart. You've done so much to treat yourself and you just have such a thorough knowledge and can explain it so well, everything you have done. But 
give us an assessment of where you're at today with your health and where you see where you see yourself moving forward. Mm-hmm. So, gosh, I am leaps and leaps and bounds better to where I was when I was at my lowest. Um, last year, at the very end of last year, I um, re-enrolled to finish my degree from FIDM, F-I-D-M, uh, online. I wanted to finish it. I only had a few credits short, and I had told myself that when I feel like I'm well enough to do it, I'm going to do it. I was determined. And so I went back last year. And at that point I was on shaky grounds because I had started to see glimmers of hope with my health improving, but I didn't know if I could do it. I was just kind of testing the water. And um, my first semester was pretty tough. I got through it. And then January comes around of this year. And I'm telling you, I, I don't know what it was that, that, that changed. Um, I think it was a culmination of a lot of different things, but from that moment on, I really felt things just really rapidly start to turn around. Um, I finished, I finished my school, um, that, that semester and, um, it was a lot easier than, than the first semester for me and I felt stronger. And so I started to kind of test the limits a little bit in terms of what I can do. Um, I, you know, taking walks and, Um, seeing my friends and just little things like that. And suddenly I felt my life coming back to me and I am a lot better than where I was. Um, You know, when you live in your body and you know what a hundred percent is, of course, I know I'm not a hundred percent, but I, I don't know. It's, it's so hard for me to put a number on this. I think through it all the time and I feel like it changes on, on any given day, maybe 80% better if I like had to put something down <clears throat> because for me, I know that there is still room for improvement, but I mean, just leaps and bounds better from where I was. So Christina, as a consequence of you having all of this, um, I guess, benefit from the various layered treatments that you've used, uh, you've actually begun to give back to the community in ways that I think is even greater than you had before. But I'd like to talk about this sort of transformation that you've gone through while you were working on your Lyme, your Lyme was working on you. And mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting to see sort of the full arc of this interview where you describe yourself as a child as being creative and, of, uh, and having this helping spirit. And now that you're sort of toward the end of this journey, we're starting to see the presentation of your creativity and your healing spirit now in the Lyme community. So let's talk about some of the things you've done. For example, your blog. And um, and we've already shared with you offline that Matt and I became big fans of yours because of your blog, where you've had brilliant posts on things like hair loss and Lyme, Mm -hmm. which was really, really powerful, especially as a bald man. I I can't can't (laughs) imagine how difficult that would be for a a beautiful young woman to have (laughs) hair loss. Um, Mm -hmm. Your detox guide is second to none. It was just brilliantly done. Uh, And I really enjoyed the investigative type reporting you did on the Infusio piece um, and then, of course, a really, really great piece on the tips for uh, a good blood draw. So talk to us about what inspires some of these pieces and some of the others that you've written on your blog. Yes. So um, so I started my blog initially in 2011 when I was diagnosed just to maybe be like a little bit of a journal. At the time when I started my blog, it was not there was very little information about Lyme disease out Um, blogs were popular, but there were not very many blogs about Lyme disease. So I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll just start this. I didn't know exactly where it was going or what I was going to do with it. Um, and you know, through the course of my illness, I know I, we, I had kind of talked about what I had been through, but 
what I might not have mentioned is that I was completely bedbound through through all of that. Um, the only time I was not was that short period um, before I relapsed, where I was still maybe like seventy percent bedbound. Um, but for the rest of those eight years, when I say bedbound, I mean all day. I, all day I was in bed, and my parents did everything for me and. I would shower once a week, once every two weeks, because it was just too exhausting for me to do it. Every meal for me was in bed. Everything was done for me. Depending on how sick I was, they would have to help me bathe or this or that. And um, if I would make it down the stairs, it would be an achievement. Like my mom would circle it on the calendar because I, Christina walked down the stairs today and it was uh, difficult and isolating because when you are kind of that sick and that tired, your connection to the outside world is pretty limited. And um, I'm someone who I kind of live in my head. I have so many thoughts in my head, words, things I want to say, things I want to research. And so my blog became an outlet for that. So I not only started sharing, of course, what I was going through. So someone would have a frame of reference for it. Um, but I also really became determined to share things that I learned um, and very specifically making educational articles that will help people. Because when you're out there searching for answers, you want, you want those. And so every single article that I would write like this, I researched tirelessly. I would have sources. I would have examples. I would have personal stories. I would kind of include everything in them. And that became my goal to connect with people and try to help them. I thought, you know, if I have to go through this and I'm someone who loves to study and determined to find out everything, why should I keep this to myself? So um, yeah, my blog was incredibly therapeutic and wonderful for me in that sense. I got to meet so many people who would email me and, or I met people on Twitter um, and I've made so many friends that way. So that is sort of, the, the arc of where my blog came into play. And then of course, as the years passed, it kept growing and growing and growing. And I have about a million readers a year, believe it or not, which shocks me. And from all over the, I mean, all over the globe, when I tell you Australia, um, Spain, Canada, throughout Europe, just it's mind boggling to me because you realize the reach of Lyme disease, it's everywhere. So it's really grown. And um, kind of going back to the version of me in high school who just wanted to help other people. I was, I was very determined to do that. And once I realized truly that my blog had a pretty big reach, I thought, okay, how can I parlay this into something useful for the Lyme community? And I see a lot of people with Lyme disease struggling to buy uh, basic necessities and, and not having the money for things that are going to help them along their treatment journey, whether it's things for pain relief or just kind of um, like supplements and just things that are kind of supplemental to their main treatment. So um, in 2008, this is kind of the first big scale thing I did. I um, did something called like the Lady of Lime giveaway. And I received $10,000 in donations of various medical supplies, like everything from, um, I know some people do like ozone treatments. Um, I got like a ozonator to um, infrared saunas to uh, pain relief devices, all kinds of things, just everything that you can imagine. And I just gave them away to people in the Lyme community. I was, you know, I thought, well, I mean, I might as well, I might as well, um, because 
I don't, I don't, I don't have any advertisement on my blog. I don't do anything like that. And, um, you know, I, a lot of companies always wanted to send me stuff and I was like, no, no, I mean, don't send it to me, send it to someone who really needs it. And so this time it was like a culmination of everything. So that was my first kind of thing where I really got to connect with patients and sort of use the power of one thing that I harnessed so long ago. I mean, I created this blog in 2011. I never could have imagined that it would do this in 2018, but it was awesome. It was so wonderful. And um, so since then, that's been my goal to, to do that. And a few other things, little things I've done is um, I, my, I have a love of design. And so I started out when I was still bed bound um, every year I would design, actually, I think I did this on three years. I would design a shirt, some kind of shirt that would be um, a holiday themed Christmas shirt that would mix with like Lyme disease awareness. And I created this design um, and I sold those with the profits going to Lyme disease charities. So uh, the Limelight Foundation, uh, most prominently. And I told myself then I said, okay, you know, I, I know I can't do more right now because this is all I can commit myself to because, because of how sick I am. But the second that I'm better and I finish my degree, I'm, I'm going to go back and I'm going to work with the Lime, with the Limelight Foundation. I just I knew I was going to do it. And so fast forward to this year, um, I freshly had my degree from Bidham and I'm doing better and I knew I wanted to do something. So I reached out to Phyllis. Uh, she is the CEO of the Limelight Foundation. She's incredible. And just to tell those of the listeners who don't know what the Limelight Foundation is, Please. they are... Um, they are a charity, a 5013C charity, and they provide treatment grants to children and young adults who are in need. So a lot of people with Lyme disease cannot pay for their treatment. It's often not covered by insurance. They just don't have the money for it. And so they provide treatment grants to help these patients be able to get well. It's incredible. And I always admired them because I feel very lucky that I had parents who could care for me and who could get me treatment and they fought for me and they could physically provide it for me. And I can't imagine the heartache of parents who are, are in this position. I mean, people have to sell their, their house, they have to sell their cars, they have to take out you know second mortgages. And, and so I really love what the Limelight Foundation does. And um, so I've always really looked up to them. I feel so lucky uh, to have gotten to know them throughout this. And so when I went to Phyllis and um, I was kind of talking to her about how I had this idea in my, in my head, I said, you know, I just finished school um, at FITM for design and all these things. How would you feel about us maybe creating a loungewear collection um, for the Limelight Foundation? And I'm so grateful because she was like, yes. And she entrusted me with it. And she said she loved the vision and that they've been wanting to improve their store um, and have some more kind of products on there. And so thus became this kind of partnership between the two of us this, uh, this August. And I started working with the Limelight Foundation, mainly because if you have any kind of chronic illness, really anything at all, loungewear is your best friend. Like you want sweatpants, you want joggers, you want hoodies, you want comfy t-shirts. I lived in those for so many years. And so, yeah, we started working on that, um, like I said, in August, and it has been a long process. Um, every little detail of it has been made very specifically for Lyme patients in terms of the softness of the fabric and the accessibility of getting things on and off and the, the color, the 
the cut, the patterns, every single thing. And um, it is officially launched now. So um, if anyone's interested in checking out the, line, the, the lounge collection, it is at uh, limelightfoundation.org slash shop. So talk to us a little bit about, uh, and, and by the way, we are strongly encouraging all of our listeners to please go to the Limelight shop and purchase some of the brilliant um, materials and, uh, and loungewear that have been developed by, by this wonderful young woman. Uh, and, and please talk to us a little bit about some of the advocacy work you've done specifically in the state of Kentucky, uh, state of Kentucky and their adoption of May as Lyme Disease Awareness Month. Yes, so um, I, I have kind of always believed that getting the word out about Lyme disease is the first, the, the first and biggest hurdle, um, especially being here in Kentucky, as we talked about, I grew up not knowing about it. Most people that I told about Lyme disease who were from here were shocked. So um, it kind of started a little bit earlier. My, uh, I think it was in 2013, um, I was interviewed here by a local TV station about my story with Lyme disease, kind of for, for May, for awareness of that. And that actually got a ton of traction, meaning I had people from all over the area reach out to me telling me that, oh my gosh, I think I might have chronic Lyme disease and I never knew. And so that really sparked this thing in my, in my brain of like, okay, we need more local advocacy, not just where I lived, but also statewide and just to kind of get, um, to get the word out there. And so one thing, and Lyme patients listening to this, you can do this in, in your state as well. Uh, you can reach out to your governor and you can ask them to sign an official proclamation and declamation, declaration to make May Lyme Disease Awareness Month in your state. Um, it's official, they have like a ceremony for it. Um, and, and although May is Lyme Disease Awareness, of course, we all you know use that, but having it on a state level like that written in a proclamation is just is just wonderful. It got a lot of uh, traction across Kentucky in terms of you know the news, and um, it really really helps get the word out there for people. And um, so yeah, yeah, I worked with our governor in 2019 to get that signed for Kentucky. So that was really exciting. That is really exciting, and that's another thing you should be proud of. I mean, despite <laughs> all the challenges you faced, you've accomplished so much. And, and Thank you. Uh, I, I'm, you should be proud of yourself, and I'm sure your parents, I can tell you, the parent of four daughters, I'd be very proud of you if you were my daughter. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Talk to us, uh, talk to us, what's the future for you in your advocacy work and in your, um, you know, in, in, in the other types of uh, giving that you're giving to the Lyme community? Mm-hmm. Whew, I have so many ideas in my head. <laughs> I will tell you, I have so many ideas in my head. Um, I definitely want to put my work in, in, in a couple different places. I obviously, I would love to continue working with the Limelight Foundation going forward. I think that is one way where I can, I have a specific talent that I can give them in terms of design and also more on a legislative uh, level. Um, I want to kind of my goal has always been that when someone gets a test for Lyme disease, so they get their test um, from Igenix or mainly I think also like the Western blot, um, things like that. When you get your results back, it just kind of tells you eh, you're fine, right? Like there's a few bands are here, but it's fine. And I think that there should have to be a disclaimer put there for patients that say, you know, this test has X amount of accuracy if you're still having symptoms, go back to your doctor to get retested because 
it can be missed in this window or that window. And it started because my, my mom, I had told you she's a physician. She's actually a pathologist and she runs the laboratory here. And she got that put onto the, to all the tests that were run here. So every single Western blot, every single test like that, that comes from this hospital for any patient has that disclaimer, but that's just because she, you know, put that on there. And I think that it should be there period. I think that when you get that test back, it should have, it should be required to be there because so many patients fall through the cracks right in that thing. They do everything right. They think they go and they get tested and then boom, you know, they get this thing that, Oh, okay, well, I'm fine. I mean, I don't feel well, but I guess I'm fine. And, um, so I, I would like to pass a law where that would be done. And so I'm very determined, um, very determined. And as you know, that means it's going to be done because I am that kind of person. You have no doubt. That is my goal. Uh, so I always told myself when I'm healthy enough, of course, now there's COVID. So, you know, can't really go around and do these things now, but post COVID, that is the first thing on my to-do list. So let me ask you one final question. Mm-hmm. If God forbid your mother came walking into your room right after this interview and she showed you she was suffering from a tick bite on her arm, mm-hmm. what would you recommend that she do so she wouldn't have to go through a very difficult chronic Lyme disease journey? Mm-hmm. Um, so I always send off the ticks for testing. I know, of course, we talked about how that could miss things, of course, but um, it's if you have it, just send it off. Like just you have it, just send that thing off. Just at least start there because this isn't the case for my mom, of course, because she understands the seriousness of ticks. But for a lot of people, they need to they need to see it. So I'm like, I tell everyone to send it off. But so if she would come in, I would send that that off. And quite honestly, um, you know, I tell people to watch for symptoms. And everyone's a little bit different because some people are not as attuned with their body. So they might not notice little changes. My mom is very attuned with her body. So I would be every single day watching her for symptoms. And just if anything seems off at all, um, I would say to get a course of antibiotics. Um, it's in, in my opinion, there is no, there's no real, real risk, right? If you overall taking doxycycline, um, people get prescribed this for acne. They get prescribed this for a cold, for sniffles, for anything of that nature. I mean, they hand it out like candy around here. So if you are bit by a tick, especially if anything feels off with, you know, even if your tick comes back and you don't feel well, take the antibiotics. Just, I'm a, I'm a proponent of asking your doctor to take them. Um, I know that that's obviously not hundred percent, but I always tell people that's kind of like my go-to thing. It's not perfect, but it's the best method I've found so far to prevent things from getting serious. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with our guest, Christina Kovacs. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Christina Kovacs and her Lyme disease journey, please visit our Instagram page at Lady of Lyme. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review and rating on iTunes or our website. Thank you for listening.